0: When I started to write this book, I left a job in Australia, six months into the job. I really didn't want anyone to think I was a quitter. So I like, instead of saying, I'm quitting, I'm moving to Europe to look after my seven year old girls, um, I said, I'm quitting to write a book on my successes. And everyone was like, okay, that's fair enough. People do that, you know, go and write your business successes. I started typing away. I made an Excel spreadsheet and a graph that showed how my words were going, and after like three months, I was nearly you know twenty-five thousand words, and I, I checked you know like, some of George Orwell's stuff was only thirty thousand words. Like I could be like Animal Farm or on Nineteen Eighty-Four, like in four months is what I thought, naively, of course. Um, but the more I started writing it, the less I believed necessarily in everything that I've done, necessarily in the system that I was from. And so I wrote about what was truest for me, which was what I was going through. At one point, someone, you know, sent me the diagram of the hero's journey, the classic story structure of the hero, and he has a problem and he goes away and he solves it and he comes home and everything's okay. I've got to sort of view that, and that's the traditional business book, but the emotional experience for the reader is meant to be um trouble i'm with this person through the search he's come back and we're okay there's resolution at the end now you know at the end of my book i'm staring at an elk in the snow in switzerland and neither of us know which way to go um my real understanding about life is that we're not on a, a simple cycle for any of us If we think our problems are over the first time we go through depression or losing our job or falling out with a partner, and then from that point onwards, we have come with the wisdom to the village of ourselves and we're all going to be okay, I think we come unstuck. I think we realize that as we get through things, we move on to greater challenges and we'll continue to hit speed bumps. The Hero's Journey or your journal, the hero is, is you, the person, not any one better or greater than you. The hero's journey just continues and continues and it continues. We take on bigger challenges, new things arise, we thought we were fine. And then we have a pandemic, we thought we were fine. And then we had a political leader we find confronting. Um, there's so many opportunities to do that. So I tried to write from the most honest position about my discovery of of that cycle and that, that invitation for lifelong learning in that way.
1: Hi, I'm Chris Whitehall. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Welcome to Chris Whitehall Living It, where I talk with experts in the experience of being human. I am lucky today to be joined by my good friend, Peter Holmes Court. We actually went to college together he is a, an international businessman, a for, a part owner of a rugby team in Sydney, the author of a memoir, really, I'm assuming we're calling it a memoir, right? Uh, riding with Giants, he is presently living in Nairobi, Kenya, is visiting us from Nairobi, Kenya, where he and his wife have a gallery, which is my the name is my favorite word in Swahili. I mean, I, there aren't a lot to choose from, but it's my favorite word. So so twiga is my favorite word. Anyway, Peter, thank you for joining us. I look forward to talking to you. Thank you very much. Um, clarification,
0: we were in college together, but I was much younger than you. <clears throat>
1: you, you actually are much younger than me. You are-
0: Yeah, I, so- absolutely, in spirit, in spirit. Number, number two, when you said- um, the, your favorite Swahili word? There aren't many to choose one from. I assume you meant of the Swahili words that you know, because that I know Swahili. Yes, good clarification. Yes,
1: yes. Nothing against Swahili by any means. No, twi- I, I probably have, I probably have a vocabulary. I might have, at my peak, had a vocabulary of about twenty-five or thirty words in Swahili. Right. And most of them so were directions. Yeah. Right. Leo, kushada Simoma.
0: And third, and pole, which means sorry, or pole, 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 which means go slowly, please. Um, uh, So, and third thing, I did have uh, a rugby league team um, that uh, um, I ran for a number of years in Australia. I'm no longer involved except as a super fan um, and I'm obsessed uh, obsessed fan in the team, and I sold out, and I'm no longer part of that. But the rest was 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 pretty much accurate. Pretty much accurate introduction.
1: Okay, pretty much accurate. I, I that's that's really having been a liberal arts, you know, liberal arts education. I'm looking for partial credit most of the time, anyway. Right? This is <laughs> this is what I'm going for. Anyway, thank you for joining. I'm glad that I got most of that pretty accurate and thank you for joining us from from africa we're on opposite ends of the spectrum eight o'clock in the morning my time five o'clock in the evening your time i want to get to the book i listened to the book so i had the benefit of not only getting the story but also listening to you one of the things that i really loved was oftentimes in the memoir genre We get stories from what I consider the top of the mountain. This is where I made my greatest success. And as a result of making my greatest success, everything I did along the way makes perfect sense.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And I wrote the opposite of that book.
1: (laughs) You did the opposite. You were in the midst of it and in a position where you didn't really know where things were going to go. And as a reader, I found that really interesting. How was that as the writer to not really know to protect your image to is your image wide open? how how does this end up working to achieve that vulnerability to be compelling?
0: Yeah, I think it's a it's I think it's a really important question because um, the the myth of the of the business book, Um, And when I started to write this book, um, I left a job in Australia six months into the job. I really didn't want anyone to think I was a quitter. So I like, instead of saying I'm quitting, I'm moving to Europe to look after my seven-year-old girls. um, I said, I'm quitting to write a book on my successes. And everyone was like, okay, that's fair enough. People do that. You know, go and write your business successes. I started typing away. I made an Excel spreadsheet and a graph that showed how my words were going, and after like three months, I was nearly you know twenty five thousand words, and I, I checked you know like some of George Orwell stuff was only thirty thousand words. Like I could be like Animal Farm on Nineteen Eighty Four. Like in four months is what I thought naively, of course. Um, the more I started writing it, the less I believed. Necessarily, and everything that I'd done necessarily in the system that I was from, and so I wrote about what was truest for me, which was what I was going through, which is uncharted territory. Living in a small town in rural France, studying the the trades and the history of of, of France as I got to understand the area I was in. At one point, someone. You know, sent me the diagram of the hero's journey, the classic story structure of the hero, and he has a problem, and he goes away, and he solves it, and he comes home, and everything's okay. Um, I've come to sort of view that, and that's the traditional business book, right? I was
1: hold on, on the- one second on that though. The, the The hero comes home and shares effectively what he learned, shares the the the, the knowledge that he's gained, right? Which is yes, okay. Because I, I want to make sure that because I think you did share knowledge that you gained.
0: Okay, uh, I, I buy that.
1: But the, the experience, the emotional
0: experience for the reader is meant to be um, trouble. I'm with this person through the search, he's come back and we're okay, there's resolution at the end. Now, you know, the end of my book, I'm staring at an elk in the snow in Switzerland, And neither of us know which way to go. Um, My real understanding about life is that we're not on a a simple cycle for any of us. If we think our problems are over the first time we go through depression or losing our job or falling out with a partner. And then from that point onwards, we have come with the wisdom to the village of ourselves and we're all gonna be okay. I think we come unstuck. I think we realize that as we get through things, we move on to greater challenges and we'll continue to hit speed bumps. The hero's journal journey, or your journal, the hero is, is you, the person, not any one better or greater than you. The hero's journey just continues and continues and it continues. We take on bigger challenges, new things arise, we thought we were fine. And then we have a pandemic, we thought we were fine. And then we had a political leader we find confronting. Um, there's so many opportunities to do that. So I tried to write from the most honest position about my discovery of of that cycle and
1: that that invitation for lifelong learning in that way does that make sense it it makes perfect sense i mean i've i've played with the idea of doing a memoir as well and i've actually published a little bit in a serial kind of way so and and it's interesting that you say that because my objective was to avoid the top of the mountain and and trying to do it, because for me, I looked at it as thinking I had three hero's journeys. Right. Where I sort of had from, from the accident to, uh, to, you know, breaking my back, becoming paralyzed, to winning the gold medal. Right. And then from the retirement, which then is the bottom of the next mountain, to the top of Kilimanjaro. Right. Which you know, which, which is, which is the second okay. one. And then, and and then coming home and going, okay, we're, you know, we were a quarter of a, a quarter of a million dollars in debt when I came home. Like, how do we make a movie? How do we, how do we move forward? How do we share the elixir and, and, and how do I live personally? So the third
0: stage, this third stage is coming back from Kilimanjaro and rebuilding, and it, does it peak with me? Or am, am, I at the, am I at the top of your third peak, or this is just part of the next journey up? This,
1: this is the peak that I've been preparing for my whole life. Well,
0: yeah, right, all oh, right.
1: Well, the good news about this story,
0: though, is that, you know, you're illustrating, um, you know, the number of cycles that you have to go through in, in life. And one of the ones for athletes of of, you know, of all really top levels, which, you know, you were, which you're at, is you know athletes finish their career and then a lot of them fall in the absolute dumps and people think but you've done it man you've come from the mean streets you've worked your way up and now you're at the top you know you leave on a high and then two weeks later you're depressed or you know doing drugs or it's it's amazing that people we buy into this this single cycle And the reality is, I hate to break it to you, Chris, you are going to find that this interviewing me is not really worth the peak of the third. And you're going to have a fourth cycle to go through and a fifth cycle to go through and a sixth But if you are smart, which I know you are, in addition to being good looking, you will take the lessons from those first ones and make it easier to go through the the next ones or have the tools to go through the next ones. Because you know, we, we, if anything, we've learned, we don't know which, you know, what, what the cycles and the challenges are going to be.
1: Well, it's also part of the gift, isn't it? I mean, I think that we as human beings, we, you know, we we start off, we want to get old enough that we can get into like R-rated movies and drink alcohol and these kinds of things, right? We want to get older and, and drive a car and those kinds of things. And then then we don't want to get any older as we go on and and the question is or the the challenge is that we have to do the difficult stuff in in order to keep living fully and that's the idea of like learning growing and dreaming which which all of which sound great except when we're in the process of it it gets a little bit harder right have you one of the questions one of the challenges is the emotional part The emotional part of continuing to have to learn and grow and dream, how do you play that emotional part in your personal life and the way that you look at your life? Because sometimes it feels like we should get somewhere and we should be somewhere and we should be something.
0: Right. And then you replay that, what you just said, and you slow it down and you hear the word should, should. Should, right. It's all that stuff, right? I went to uh, I went to Zimbabwe about uh, seven or eight years ago, um, and uh, we were late driving across Zimbabwe in this, you know, little pickup truck. Um, we were going to have dinner with someone that had known my father, and as a consequence, he was in his early eighties, um, and we were really late, and we didn't get to his house until eleven o'clock at night. Um, we were there um, to have dinner. Um, he and his wife met us at eleven o'clock at night and said, "You know, Peter, please go and wash your hands. You know, take a quick shower if you'd like. Um, we'll have a drink in the living room and then we'll go in for dinner." Right. So I'm sitting down to dinner at eleven thirty with a Zimbabwean, white Zimbabwean man, who had lost a number of farms to um, land. Invasions, if you want to call them that, or reappropriations or land distributions. Well, whatever you want to call. It. For the next hour and a bit until something closer to two in the morning, um, he was there to ask me questions about what was happening in the world and what did, he th- what did I think about this and had I heard anything when I was in Kenya last or Congo last and what do I think about what's going on in Australia? Um, the vibrancy of human beings who stay engaged and curious and learning through their lives is just fundamentally different from the vibrancy of those who switch off in a series of shoulds, which very quickly turn into bitterness because they don't turn out way. I should have this job for life. I should be respected at the clubhouse. My children should know that I'm intelligent and know everything. Um, well, I agree with that one actually. Um, but the point the point is any of that should stuff just leads to unhappiness, and it comes so quickly. It's it's as if you have to have your head in the sand to not realize this whole planet, uh, the human um, ideals and culture is moving on so fast. And the most fun part to be part of is, uh, to, um, is to be um, addicted to, to growth, to personal growth, to learning. Um, and that's where the fun stuff lies.
1: Is this part of the evolutionary process? It's interesting as you're mentioning the shoulds, having done a little bit of research on you. I mean, and tell me if this is, if my research is correct. So so your father was the first billionaire in Australia? Is that correct? That is reported. Um, (laughs) That is reported. Okay.
0: That is reported. It's not actually true, um, but it doesn't um, take away from the fact that for a short time in the 1980s, less than 12 months, um, the shares of the company that he ran and owned part of meant that on paper, not that he could ever sell those shares, his assets were worth in excess or close to um, what was then a billion Australian dollars. So in that sense, it was true. In the other sense, was there others before him? Yes. Um, Was he an immigrant who came to Australia and worked his way up from twenty three thousand dollars to quite a lot more than that yes um was he also a man who died when he was 53 um who put everything heart body and soul into what he was doing and didn't stay around to spend much time with his kids um so yes those are those are factors um and his experience and my growing up with having him as my my father um, was very
1: much part of my experience in life you are 53 right now as well right
0: yes but i'm fit but i'm fit um i'm fit and look after myself and have no intention of going the way you went yeah that's kind of interesting thing when i got to 53 um yeah it i thought it wouldn't i thought it wouldn't impact me but it has you know it just it's a marker it's a time it's made me think a lot about him. Uh, but I made a decision very early on that I was going to live my life in a different way. And I I don't want that to be disrespectful to him. I don't want to say that, you know, I chose to be, uh, you know, different. What he did was wrong. What he obviously did was right for him. That was his journey. That's what he... Um, that's what he was on. Um, and so I think... Uh, you know, i've chosen to live my life
1: a different way it's interesting though too isn't it because our parents our world around us is what we know right that insular community is what we know and we have oftentimes two choices one we do what they do and two we try to do the opposite of what they do which being a parent i would imagine that there are quite a few times that you've that you said as a kid I will never, ever do this. and then you find yourself with your own children doing exactly the same thing that you said you would never do. but but looking at the uh, you know, because there's an obligation in some ways, right? your your father, you know, built himself from from nothing. and then and then your mother, in a lot of ways was was more successful than than your father. And then being the firstborn, the firstborn boy, right? The firstborn male, the, the responsibility of moving forward. How do you because you said you you early on made that decision that you didn't want to do what he did, but you also did the education, the boarding school from from right. the time that you were little. Right. Uh, right. you know, we I, I know you from Middlebury, which was a great English college.
0: And ec- Economics degree, law degree, went into investment banking. Okay, so I did start down that track.
1: Hold on, there was economics and theatre, I believe, as well. Yeah, this is there's a yin and yang going on. There was that part of me which was trying
0: to bust out and be a bit more, uh, be a bit more creative, um, but that felt that I couldn't do it. Right, which felt that wasn't the right thing for me to do. I definitely felt that through my um, through my younger years. I felt really. Know, committed to doing what was what was right, um, up to and including when I went to Oxford. I, I read law at Oxford, and I started Oxford a month after my father died. Um, and I remember thinking, you know, family business is in need of help. Um, uh, I've just lost my father. Uh, I'm sure that uh, I could be doing better things with. Um, with my life. And I remember him saying, when I'd applied to Oxford, that um, he didn't go, um, because there was a better um, degree that would earn him more money somewhere else. I think at the time, it was a forestry degree in um, New Zealand, and he took that instead of Oxford. Um, And, but so I, in terms of intergenerational obligation, like, I think I felt I had to go to Oxford, um, because he didn't he didn't get a chance to do that so there's no doubt I had and that. was it
1: for him that he didn't get a chance to do it or or that you were were doing something that he didn't do as well because there's a part of it you've got to put your stamp on it too don't you you're like hey I'm good enough that I can get into Oxford like this is this is the pinnacle right yeah um uh, wow that
0: separating those things is pretty hard. Um, <laughs> the reality enough. is, you put them all in the same, uh, you put them all in the same pot, stir it and bake it, and you can no longer tell the ingredients. Once you've once you're idiot, you can't take the constituent parts apart. Um, uh, yeah, and I think, um, look, you know what I what I did feel, um, and I felt it. You know, we went to. Um, College, you know, in Vermont, into a little liberal arts college um, that was quite expensive in those days, and is very expensive these days. Um, and I felt from the moment I got to that college how fortunate I was. I mean, the place looked like a holiday resort. Um, every single person um, was good-looking. Um, the weather was, um, except for mud season, it was beautiful in the fall. Um, skiing and skiing opportunities in this winter sometimes not Uh, but it was it was so beautiful and this and the opportunity to learn I felt so fortunate um to to go to to Middlebury and then I went um I went to Oxford and it was again I yeah to to break apart what the constituent elements were I was so fortunate there I was walking in the same corridors where the greatest thinkers have there I were working with the greatest scientists were working um and I think um you know l- tying back that point about um, lifelong learning and uh is 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 often tied to being grateful um for where you are and what you've learned which makes you excited about the next thing that you'll learn and the next thing you'll learn and the next thing you'll learn and so I think in in that way, I really have a lot to thank America, um, Vermont um, and and Middlebury for having had a pretty lousy high school experience, lousy sort of code for institutionalized bullying and vaguely cloaked sexual abuse, um, had a pretty lousy high school to go into um, the opportunity and that the best of America, which is that anyone can do it type of style and and belief. Totally speaking, from the privilege of person who goes to a college in Vermont of liberal arts, God, that's privileged. I get it, but it still had that American drive and freedom, and completely uh, rocked my world and and shaped
1: my shaped my life. And people who believed in you, I assume, as well, which was probably an interesting step.
0: Well, I got to tell. sort of funny side of that story is that I arrived, I arrived at college um, the summer after Crocodile Dundee was in the cinemas um, in America. And so I'd been a dweeby kid at um, high school in Australia from the wrong state, you know, uh, uh, and the wrong part of the country. And I walked into college in America with this. I think my accent got broader when I arrived. I think I was, you know, basically, you know, wearing a crocodile belt and a knife wherever I went suddenly I was cool for the first time in my life I'm not sure I've ever been as cool as I was freshman week at uh, at at college so a you know it was nice to to have that B, an exceptional group of uh teachers who you know uh, supported you know me because I just took on everything I possibly could whether it was student government or playing rugby or um acting or economics or theater. I just took on everything I could again in the in the bounteous, wonderful opportunity that we had.
1: Right. And and obviously also being able to go back like with your book and and revisit relationships with your professors. So like Professor Claudon was yeah, was one of yeah. your yeah. one of your consultants on the book. Would it be a consultant? Would it be a a, a Yeah, Absolutely. I,
0: economics professors, a couple of economics professors from Middlebury who were able to um, correct me, this was a polite way of saying it, Um, and or guide me in the way of other um, things. So, um, you know, I think that um, you know how long-term relationships with people um, that uh, you water sometimes, you drop in are also a pretty powerful thing in life. You know, when you're able to go back to university professors or your first employers or your first people and and stay in contact to see what wisdom they can give about what you're doing or who you are now or who you were then to really understand yourself. I think that's a, that's a super um, helpful thing.
1: When you left Oxford, there are a lot of different things. I mean, we've talked a little bit about the family, the family aspect. We talked about the the institutional bullying in uh, in high school, the the being embraced in college, the having a great opportunity and a great responsibility in in having been afforded this kind of education, both from Middlebury and from Oxford. When you go out on your own with this bundle of stuff, what do you what do you say? I mean, because you've gone on the production side, you've talked about in investment banking, uh, there there gets to be a rugby team. What's the competitive side of you that says, this is how I'm going to do it? This is this is how I'm going to establish who I am as a person. Did that go through your mind?
0: Well, I mean, I think um, you know,
1: if we you know, we went to my
0: father, you mentioned my mother. Um, both of them were um, socially liberal. Um, I think you'd say my mother was politically liberal and socially liberal. My father was more politically politically conservative but socially liberal. Both were very much from the school of those with privilege or opportunity, a lot is expected of. I mean, that was just, I really felt that was in in our family, you know, was in the water at home you know you have op- you have opportunity you have privilege and with that becomes comes great um uh, responsibility um and a commitment to our society um, and in every job that i did um uh, every job i've done i've made social responsibility um a core part of the Organizations that that uh, I ran, and not not a bolt-on social um, uh, piece, not a bolt-on. Um, what uh, do you mean
1: by social responsibility?
0: What I mean is you cook it into the values of an organization that doing good is just good to do for your business, for the people who work for you, and for your and for your customers. Um, I, you know, I think about, you know, when I was in the, uh, when I was in the production company, you know, one of our, you know, proudest moments is we were the first, we produced the first Aboriginal woman on stage in the Sydney Opera House. I was like, how good's that? Someone put an Opera House on an old Aboriginal man's land. Um, and uh, the world comes and looks at it and forgets who was there first um, uh, and um, and now he's an Aboriginal woman standing on the stage doing a one-woman show. Um, I ran a cattle company um, and uh, while I was running the cattle company we went up with an Australian Indigenous leader and recognised... 175 years of continuous employment of Aboriginal workers in the company. So for 175 years, the same company had employed Indigenous workers and, and you know the, the quote that I read from the from the archives of the company from about 1856 talked about, you know, the problems with the staff. Um, and how hard it was to keep staff working in um, the tough conditions of outback Australia, and um, specifically the habitual drunkenness of the white employees. And so there was like a it, it turned out they were the best employees. I mean, it's not that hard to work out. A guy from Ireland or a guy from the middle of Australia was the best at working in Central Australia. So they were the company's first great, you know, workers. Um, You know, when uh, Russell Crowe and I I owned that rugby team together um, for about eight years, um, seven years, Um, and uh, we... um, you know, we put through a number of programs to really tie our players to what the club was doing in the community for a virtuous circle that has never been stronger, where the, the players getting to see what an impact they would have in the community had such an impact on the players themselves as 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 people to see um improved uh Player behavior improve, improved what was happening in the community and improved the support for the team. We baked it into the team. We baked South Cares into the South Sydney Rabbitohs. So um, I think, yeah, I think I've always felt that that was something that, you know, came naturally to me. And it came naturally because um, my parents really put it into me.
1: Well, it came naturally. And, and and it's the right thing to do you know for the people but at the same time it sounds like it was the right thing to do for the business i mean in a business oftentimes people say okay you're in business to be profitable right but this is this is being profitable while being profitable on another level as well on on building the people and nourishing the people and the community so Was it all was it all baked into your strategy from the beginning that you wanted that this is the way that you were going to be successful as a leader?
0: Interesting question. I think that it just it just it just appears that the best way to run a business is to do good for your people, your community. Um, It's very it's very hard to make. Uh, a statement that long term you can be hurting your employees or your community. You might make money in the short term, but your employees will be the first out the door. Um, the government will come back to you first to say you've polluted this river, um, and your employees will tell you exactly. The employees will tell the government exactly what you did. Um, I think it's only short term. Um, as if the world's taught us anything over the last two and a half years. Um, holding on to good staff is one of the hardest things for a company to do and one of the things that creates the best value for uh, a company and buying people smoothies and giving them massages in their chairs are really just short-term issues. If you don't want to be faced with mass resignations, um, you've got to make people believe that the place they're working is better than the next place. It's not the best place on the earth. It's the only job on the planet but it's better than the other place and you want to make your people believe that they want to work there Um, and that you do by baking it into the organization so everyone understands what they're doing every day rather than giving a chair massage here and a cappuccino there
1: yeah exactly and but one of the things it's interesting you were talking about the athletes and and thinking as an athlete as, as a fan and I'm assuming that you were you were a fan before you were an owner. As a fan, it's so easy to take each win and each loss so personally that that it increases that pressure on the athletes where, you know, the athletes are trying to do their job. They're trying to perform as best they can. They don't necessarily need all of this pressure from every single fan But yet with them going into the community and getting to know the community, how did that relationship change? Did it affect the athletes on the field in addition to the way that they interacted with the fans?
0: Yeah, well, um, you know, that's a really interesting thing these days in, you know, that was when I was doing that, it was close to, you know, it was close to uh, eight, nine years ago when we first started that. The the impact of social media is so much stronger these days, where people really believe they not only know the athletes, but they can actually trade their personal stories, insults, racist comments directly at the athletes, because the athlete didn't kick the goal. He's some now lesser human being and deserves to be spoken that way. Look, I think we're in a a stage of uh, a much more difficult relationship between um, athletes and the community as a result of that um, of that that social media. Um, I I think in the, the the other part of your question, which was about the, um, you know, what is the what is the relationship between a fan and a club? Um, as opposed to a fan and an individual player. So a tennis player, someone's a fan of that tennis player. And they're going to be a fan of that tennis player until that tennis player stops playing the game. If they're a fan of a team, then there'll be players that come and go, but they'll have, you know, this hold on the on the team. And a love for that team that transcends um, the individual who's the quarterback or the kicker or the, the, the striker for that team. And just because we're, you know, talking about this, uh, uh, one of the best... Thinkers that that I know is a guy called Nassim Taleb. Um, Nassim Taleb writes, um, you know, very smart, slightly mathematical uh, philosophy. And um, one of the things he says is that, you know, for, for things that don't matter, like sports teams or the colour of your dress, um, argue ferociously, argue with full commitment, fight to the end verbally, um, about which team is better and who should have won and who cheated and what dress is better and what shoes are better and what shirt is better, what headphones are better. But for anything that does matter. Take it very, very seriously, study every part of it really understand it don't make a flippant comment about a complex piece of foreign policy, because it matters. You know, just because you think that's a bad idea, look into all the reasons and the pros and cons and the histories of things, read the best people about it. And, you know, if you want to make a comment, do it only after you've done that. So one of the things I love most about sport is that it's something we can give ourselves to, you know, fully, completely. But when it comes Monday, it was just a game. And by Saturday night, we're going to think it's the most important thing on the planet and that referee is a cheat and the system's stacked against us and, you know, and you're going to fight for that. But on Monday morning, it's just a game and we go back and cycle through it. And that should be us being in touch with the lighter parts of ourselves, a romance, a type of, a type of love, a type of frivolity, and then the other stuff where we really impact people's lives where we really try to change things, where our actions can have an environmental or a political impact. That stuff we should be doing with, with seriousness and, and, and deep resonance.
1: We should be. We should be. That's, that certainly is for sure. And it's just really interesting to see where the... Because it is part of that culture, right? I mean, the, the team has been around since, what, 1908? 1908? like part of the original team and so you look at that original team and as an athlete for me I understand what you're saying about the 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 international politics and but but also celebrating that journey of of both the athlete and the team i mean because it is a microcosm and it's an opportunity for us as as fans to be able to see how people perform in pressure how people take a weakness and turn it into a strength and 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 we need that, you know. We, we... And,
0: and that's the absolute drama of life, right? This is the best player in the world, but he missed a simple throw on the buzzer. How can that even happen, right? Of course he makes every shot. No, he doesn't because he's under pressure because something else was going on. That's a human story. That's human frailty. I'm a frail human. We're watching that. We're involved in that, uh, that drama, that ups and down. And that's constantly why... We go to sport. It's why we touch. Um, it's why we touch sport, and why, you know, I think one of the big, um, you know, positive um, changes has happened. I think quite quickly recently is with the growth of women's sport. More women are watching sport, women's sport, and then the men's, you know, version of the sport, and it's it's. And there's a place for the for men to gather by themselves and women to gather by themselves. I'm not I'm not saying there isn't benefit in that. But one of the great things is you can have a you know a, a men's game and there's a female commentator and a woman in the room can actually say no that was offside on the third thing. And it's like it's changing the dynamics. So it's not we're we're removing some of the slight you know sexist, slightly brutal side of sport to, to return it to a little bit more of that, that social. And now I think we can be more, we're increasingly able to be more social um, in um, and, and, and socially mixed in our celebration of sport.
1: Well, it's, it's, it's a common language on some levels, mm-hmm. but then bringing in a different perspective. And and I think that that's that's the nature of a great conversation, isn't it? Where we have a platform where we can we can we can meet, but then to be able to bring in new perspectives, where we're looking at because I mean that's that's one of the one of the tenets of business in so many ways is that that it, it's so easy to follow the crowd, but who's going to be the one who's going to go in an opposite direction? And sometimes that can be you know the worst direction to go, but sometimes that can be the most beneficial direction to go but also the most challenging you got dropped in france i mean you really i mean this is you you dropped yourself in france but but circumstances etc yeah variety of things you dropped yourself in france as 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 a big man you know what six three you were saying 95 kilos uh driving a big
0: i'm not gonna i'm not gonna give you my exact proportions but that's about correct
1: yes well you you put it in the book you put it in print wow yeah. i did yeah you did uh, you did i wish i, I wish I, yeah that's right you, you you put it as a starting point before you got on your bike right right, right. so yeah i was
0: and and as driving in a, a sort of a, a land rover which is an english car i'd never thought of land rover being an english car um and and driving around rural france and i think um yeah, the, uh, you know, the French, um, particularly the ones you know in parts of that area, are not known for being tall at all. Um, and I think in some of people's vision of of France, it's 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 Paris and chateaus and stuff, uh, or the on the beaches. Uh, but rural France is a very humble, very modest um, um, area, and and. I I tell the story of visiting you know some neighbours who didn't have a a flushing toilet. They peed in a bucket, um, uh, and and part of the reason to tell those stories was I was talking about how. Rich their family life was, I was talking about how animated the conversations were at their table, I was talking about how long they spent together preparing the meals and, and eating them and talking and how many how often they were seated at the same table during the week and talking and talking and perhaps the talking and talking I couldn't understand much of it perhaps that helped me sit back and observe by the end I could understand but at the beginning. There was just a bunch of funny words. Um, and so dropping in there as a uh, as a tall guy who knew none of the language, um, uh, but with a really uh, open mind to, to learn and, and to be taught, it's a very special experience.
1: Special experience, but you also, I mean, situation dropped you in an uncomfortable situation, right? In an uncomfortable position where, you have to make it work. As you said, like pedestrian, can we call it pedestrian French to start off and in, in, in rural not France? Even that
0: pedestrian? Yeah, not even pedestrian. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> but but you learned quickly. And, and and being the primary or the exclusive caregiver to your seven year old twin daughters. So there's a lot of challenge right there. And then you decided that you wanted to do a stage of the the amateur stage of the tour de france alpe d'uez which is one of the iconic stages right and, and we talked about climbing kilimanjaro prior to this so alpe d'uez so they did the 12th stage this year was very similar to what you right did right, right. so right. so Galibier. uh uh, Telegraph, yeah. Le Croix de Fer, yeah. and, yeah. then, and then L'Opduez, which was over 15,000 feet of climbing. So, approaching three feet, three miles straight up and down. Right. Uh, what, hundred over 100 miles of, of paddling. <laughs> the
0: funny thing that you say, you say the height, whenever people would say, they would talk about the race. They say, oh, it's very big. You know, it's three miles, five kilometres. I'm like, five kilometres is not very far. I mean, I can ride five kilometres. Yeah, it it makes such a difference that it's straight up. It makes such a difference. And then it's terrifyingly steep on the way down. And then it's straight up again. It makes a big difference. When I first started that adventure, I didn't understand that. I'm glad I didn't. I don't think I would have done it if I had. <laughs> no, because uh, no, you
1: think about you think of, a, you think of a, Oh well, it's it's three miles going up this hill. Okay, I can do three miles. That's not a big deal. Yeah. No, yeah. No. Exactly. no, no, no. I got it around the wrong way. You're going straight up because, like, <laughs> the comparison in, in Kilimanjaro, I went from six thousand feet at the base to nineteen thousand Nineteen feet. Yes. So, so yeah. thirteen thousand feet of of difference. Right. You did. Fifteen thousand feet, and granted, you were on pavement; we were on dirt, you know, th- this kind of thing. But at the same time, that that to me puts it in a perspective where this was a long day.
0: Like <laughs> I think, I think um, uh, one of the things that uh, I've done uh, through my life is um, jumped into things when I knew they were broadly safe. If someone told me that was safe, I would do it without taking a lot of, you know, excessive proportion cr- precautions. Steve Irwin told me once to jump on a crocodile and he said, one, two, three, go. And we jumped, jumped on a crocodile. He told me to jump on it. He, know, he knew crocodiles. So I did it. Someone said that, was, that race is awesome. I was like, I signed up for it. I was training in rural France in the flattest part of the country one of the stories I wrote in my book is I took the seat off my bike so I couldn't sit down because I figured that was the only way I'd stay up on the pedals. Um, I mean, I couldn't sit down like uh, without a great deal of pain. Um, so I took the seat and the post off and I just rode and rode and, and, and rode to try and like mimic what it's like to ride up uh, mountains. Um, so and we yeah, established
1: think- that you are not built like a mountain climber. No, no. I was, I was built.
0: Um, I'm, I've, I've uh, yes, I'm sort of heavy for that.
1: You could have been a sprinter. I mean, like if you had that turnover, you could, with your build, you could be a sprinter. But those, those, those guys are are more like jockeys, practically. But I mean, they, they are.
0: As far as I'm concerned, they're cheating. They're absolutely cheating by not by not having any bodies above the waist, being like a set of lungs and thighs. I think that's not fair. Okay. And so, yeah, I was upset with that.
1: That is hysterical. So, so you took your seat off your bike to train, you yeah. prepared, what was, was there a feeling of just abject fear as you approach this? Because you're also, you're, you get into the tunnel, like just watching the fans, I watching it on television. I wonder how these guys don't get vertigo. As they're going up these steep climbs, because you're, I mean, they're what? They're 190 beats per minute or something like that on the very fine full red line. And, P, and this this tiny little space that they get to go through the people and somebody's moving in and out and wondering where it is. I am amazed that they don't just topple over just because they've lost the sense. Right. But well, you're I in watch in that tunnel. I, you don't have a chance. Well, you can't stop.
0: So okay, I'm not very, I'm not built to go uphill, but but technically I'm built to go downhill, right? Because uh, weight makes a big difference when you go downhill, um, and so you, you climb up these mountains and then you start to go downhill, and you know you're 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 starting to turn down, and I just realized I was just picking up so much more speed than anyone else. I was going significantly faster than anyone else, tucked completely back, going in and uh, it on the way down. There's a series of tunnels that you go into. So it's middle of the day, bla- blazing bright sunshine. And then you go into a tunnel in the Alps with like dripping water that's come down from top. So it's, the, it's wet, it's glistening, it's pitch dark, or even if it isn't pitch dark, your eyes, which were just out in the sun, can no longer see anything and you're just going through a tunnel with people screaming in their different languages, slow down, stop ret, pole, anything. I don't think they were speaking Swahili, but they were speaking, you know, unless it was Chris who who's a Kenyan-born cyclist. Not many Kenyan-born cyclists, but anyway, um, some great ones. Um, And so you are flying through and I realized I'm significantly faster than everyone else because I weigh a good 10 kilograms on everyone else. And I would fly through these tunnels with the sounds of crashing and water and fly out the other side and think that was possibly the dumbest thing I've ever done in my entire life until the next tunnel came up when I'd repeat exactly the same thing and come flying out the other side spat out into the light on the uh, other
1: side of the tunnel. Going downhill quickly is a good thing because you're making time. This race, I think the Tour de France was created before the lawyers seemed to get involved because you look at some of these courses and you think, what's the liability of this? Is somebody going to go off the side of the Alps? You had to have bike handling skills though. So you could go fast. But going fast can be a huge detriment if you can't keep the rubber side down. I'm I'm, I'm quite, um,
0: you know. Okay, we talk about the hero's journey, right? Like, so I'm quite good, you know. At I was like I wasn't very good at cycling. I had to get better at cycling. I practiced a lot. The first race I went into, I rode in the sort of demonstration lap. They did one demonstration lap. I rode with a bunch of professional cyclists, and we rode up demonstration lap, we went around, we pulled to the, like the finish, again, one cyclist went in and then the next one went in and the next one went in and I went in the last spot and I pulled up in the last spot and I forgot to unclip and I literally went <laughs> next to me. So like, that's how bad I was when I started. I trained, I trained, I got better and better and better. But as I said before, the hero's journey, we tend to take on something else. So I'd seen that sort of wacky video on the internet where um, this actually wasn't in the up to as a race I did um, practice a few weeks before. I'd seen that wacky video on the internet where you can go really fast downhill if you put your hands on the steering wheel and then you put your your lower belly on the seat and your feet out flat, so you're just completely prone. Right? I can tell you that is the fastest I've ever been on a bicycle, and it's quite easy to get into the position. Because you just lean over, you you basically squeeze down until you know you've got your lower abs on the seat, and then you kick your legs out the back and you're going prone on a bike down a hill, 70, 80 kilometers an hour. It feels absolutely fantastic. It's an amazing feeling. Um, it's really hard to get back on the pedals though. So I was I was, I was in the pro. I hadn't, there wasn't there wasn't there wasn't a video on the internet, a video on the internet that shows that doesn't say what happens next and so i was stuck on, i was stuck prone, trying to get legs into impossible positions and i couldn't get my leg around to get on the bike and i was stuck flying down the hill sort of screaming which people who heard me afterwards thought i was squealing from joy no i was squealing out of, being terrified so the point is you learn a skill you get better at it better at it and then the idiot takes on another challenge which is to ride prone down a hill and you have to go through the process of learning that and so we keep taking on bigger and bigger challenges as we meet the ones in front of us
1: the idiot takes on another challenge i think is what you just said that seems like seems like an appropriate next step in the rest of your life or maybe this has been the life leading up to it because because this is the elixir part, right? This is you had you had the high powered, the glitzy, the business, the New York, the London, it's Sydney,, uh, you know, going going to Africa now. what's the what's the and the social conscience as well throughout what is have you come to a bit of a realization in terms of in terms of pathway, in terms of where you're going to allow yourself? to be the idiot taking on the next challenge
0: right now i live in kenya you mentioned that before i live in kenya um there is there's a really exciting thing happening across africa not in every country all the all african countries are countries it's not the continent um made up of countries and there's many 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 countries where so much good is happening um, i think I think broadly, if people understand that African independence came, you know, from the colonial powers came on the whole, you know, between the 60s and the 70s, Ethiopia later, um, apartheid in South Africa ending later. Um, But the sort of the the period where there was the greatest change was the 50s and, and 60s. And a lot of what happened after that in a lot of countries in Africa was really a replication of the the, um, colonial, um, uh, of the colonial system with just another person in control who happened to be born there. Um, And there wasn't as much change as the people wanted to take place, which is usually what happens in the revolution. People have a in any revolution, they have a view that everything will change, and sometimes it's just rearranging the deck chairs. But then, after a while, we're talking now about you know the the second and third generation of Africans that have grown up in a, a in a free country in their country, um, and you're seeing such an exciting um, e- explosion in the in the creativity. You're also talking of an of an era where you don't necessarily need enormous amounts of capital to be in business so after the revolutions it was cement companies and trucking companies and airplanes and big heavy industry and you couldn't get into that industry unless you were either you know foreign funded or were able to appropriate those assets from the last guy who had them um now you're seeing people doing little startups doing little things so that so a next generation is is coming through um couple that with Um, diaspora, so people who've left Africa, educated overseas or even born overseas, but they feel their roots are in an African country and are coming back, um, uh, coming back here. I think the other big trend that makes exciting to, to be here is I think the sort of, you know, the idea that, you know, there could be a white savior or that the West has all the ideas, the West isn't holding itself up as having all the ideas. You know, there's no great banner that says the West is perfect, come and follow us. So it's there's a, a real understanding of, you know, African stories told by Africans. Yeah, they're often supported and funded by a studio in America or the UK, but there's the creativity that I'm seeing and some of the stuff that we're starting to be involved in here, you know, is is this great mesh between, you know, people telling stories here, money from the outside, platforms from the outside, or music from here. So for me, um, I know that some people look at what I'm doing and think, you know, it must be, you know, atoning for sins that we're not aware of, or it must be some enormous, you know, hardship, or it must be, you know, you know, to, to save the world. It's, it's exciting. It's exciting to live here. It's exciting to um, uh, be able to jump into deep conversations with pretty much everyone, you know, you talk to. Everyone's working on, that I know is working on serious stuff, and it's great to be able to dive into that. And the final thing I'd say on that, which is a real joy, is race politics or conflict or the, um, the things that have made um, a lot of Western... Um, countries difficult over the last couple of years, um, just haven't been an issue here. You know, I can, um, you can joke with anyone here. There's there's not a lot of race tension um, at all. Um, there's more likely to be tribal that tension than there is to be race tension. Um, no, it's a, it's it's a fantastic place to live in 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 that regard. And I I I know I have a heap of you know, white privilege living here. Um, And uh, I know I have so many benefits from that, but it's, you know, it's not a hardship gig. This is an exciting, wonderful part of the world to be in right now. And I feel fortunate to be here. I feel like I'm lucky compared to, what my friends have to deal with in parts of the US or parts in Australia or what people are complaining about or what situation in the UK at the moment. Um, I feel very fortunate to, to be here and to be able to do some humanitarian work and some business work and some having fun. I'm going on Safari tomorrow. I'm going to see, I'm going to go see traditional Maasai elders and the ceremonies they do for healing um, and personal discovery um the plant medicines that they use and how they structure their ceremonies. Um I think I'm a pretty lucky guy to be able to go and do
1: that. It is. I mean just how much you get to learn. I remember when we were first in Tanzania, I was talking with uh with this woman, Sarah, who is our liaison and she was talking about the Maasai. And she said there was almost no incidence of like suicide among the Maasai who are who lived this difficult nomadic what we'd see as a difficult nomadic life. And they said they were never really alone you know they were always they were always with somebody and always supported and interesting how how far we can get from you know from from the important part in some ways from the west how easy it is to deviate sometimes and some of our mel- mental health might be might be as simple as that some of these issues sorry chris just
0: to just to understand that are you suggesting there might be something we can learn from traditional cultures people that don't have cars and dislocate themselves wow that's quite amazing what an amazing idea i think it's a i think it's a wonderful and they've been successful throughout you might be you might be onto something there there's something to learn outside uh our world amazing
1: exactly well you can report back to us when you when you get back from your from your safari which we we in in africa safari is a journey right as opposed to it's in swahili exactly it's meant to be a journey and
0: i'm um that's perfect for what we're doing in the plant medicine space there and and other discoveries there. But safaris were meant to be a journey and they're meant to be a place where you were going somewhere in your heart and it got hijacked by out of Africa and gin and tonics and luxury tents. Um, And it's meant to be a place where you come back differently because you've been on a a journey. Um, And uh, I think that's the best way to do safaris here is where, and we really try and focus when we take people on safaris is, you know, don't fly. Uh, this is an advertisement for doing things differently. Don't fly all the way to Africa just to look at the animals. There's a whole bunch of interesting people here, and that's a little bit insulting to fly over them, see the animals. There's plenty in your zoos you can go to and see them, but like the people and the richness of the culture and the ceremonies, that's where it's at. And increasingly, people know that. You know, it is wonderful seeing the animals. All the animals, I've seen them all, they're all amazing. Get that but then mix it with an understanding of culture and how people lived with those animals and, you know, different ways of, of organizing society besides just putting a fence around things and putting the people over there and the animals over there, there's, there's different ways of, of doing it. And that stuff's important.
1: It's important. And it's, it's part of our personal safari, our personal journey in life to figure out how we interact with each other, how we interact with the animals, how we interact with our community and and what I love about what you're doing, Peter, is how 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 you seem to be more excited about joining the next safari. And and, and I'd imagine that earlier on, you, you had projects and you had things that you wanted to do. Yeah, but it wasn't necessarily no, you... as much of the safari. No, listen, you called me on that. You
0: did call me on that when I first started. I didn't, you know, I've grown into this set of beliefs in this way of uh, of acting you you correctly pointed out that you know i did the economics degree the law degree the investment banking i went boom 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 you know and so maybe some of the challenges i've had in my life some of the ups and downs of the loss of people and loss of loves you know maybe that all adds up to taking a you know a different approach and a different speed um and maybe that's you know how i come to be here
1: What's the message that you give to your children now? The message I give to my children? Yeah. I Is, mean, having... Uh, I, having... I, tell you, I tell you, I've had a bunch of them, um,
0: kids. Um, and uh, if you... It's a bit of a tangent from what we're doing. It's just like, I'm proud of them and I love them. And I don't know if there's anything else that I need to say. Um, I'm proud of them and I love them. I'm proud of them and I love them. For whatever choices they make you know, um, for whatever they are are choosing to do. Two of my boys now, I'm proud. They're making rent, working in jobs, first jobs. They're paying their rent and they're starting to learn about responsibility, work, working a team. Um, And I'm really proud of them. And, uh, you know, uh, they were at university during COVID, which must have been the worst time in the world to be at university. They got a really, you know, bad yeah. Uh, I was going to say, there's probably a word for that. There's a, there's a bad word for that. They got a bum rap. They got a bum rap. That's just, they got a bad deal, but they've come out of it and they're paying their rent and working. I'm so proud of them. So yeah, I'm really proud of my kids and I love them unconditionally. That's and how crazy. old are your
1: daughters now? Cause I feel like I knew them when they were seven.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You knew them at 17. Um, and, uh, are as of, uh, yesterday, 19 years old and, um, gorgeous, intelligent um, girls that I couldn't be more proud of. So I just think that's what I've tried to do with my kids is just tell them how much I love them as they are, where they are um, in their lives at that at that stage. And I've tried to do that for all, all my kids the best way I could.
1: Well, I hope people get a chance to to either read your book or listen to your book because you do a tremendous job doing the narration for your own book, which is, I love it when authors do their own narration, but I also know that that's not an easy thing to do. That's a challenging thing to do so kudos to you you did a tremendous job in that thank you but I'd love people to to tune in for the journey that you went on for the safari that you went on but also the interplay between you and your daughters and and really how you were you were both leading each other and and supporting each other and and how a seven year old Seven-year-olds had had a lot to teach you, yeah. as, as as a middle-aged male. So thank you, Peter, for for joining us, for for taking the time. And, yeah. Who's middle-aged?
0: Are you talking about yourself? I'm young. Middle-aged. You were so much older than me at college. Just one more thing before we go. Um, how come I've got no hair and you have just like perfect hair? How come that? Is that even fair? Is that even I, you, fair?
1: This is this is all genetics. It's it started turning gray very early on though. So, right. so I've kept it, right. but it's changed colors. And so <laughs> you know,
0: this
1: this right. is the way that these things go. I, hopefully we, we live a good life and keep uh and, and keep getting to choose better and 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 cooler challenges along the way. Yeah.
0: Choose cooler challenges. I love that.
1: I love that. Yes. Thanks, Matt. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you to all of you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please tell your friends, tell your friends to tune in that we'll have another great guest next week. Please follow us, please like us, and we will do our best to bring great stories to you. Thanks very much. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Waddell Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.